Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Good evening. Can you guys hear me? Okay. Okay, cool. Um, well, um, thanks for coming to Campus Collective tonight. Um, like Dustin said, my name's Anthony, um, and my wife Sarah and I are members here at HCC, and we are just ecstatic that you guys would take a Tuesday night um, and come here and be with us and sit around God's Word. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and get to Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 29. We're kind of at the culmination of Hebrews. We've got this chapter and we've got one more. And Hebrews has been this book just jam-packed with theological truths for us to build our life on. True things about Jesus that because they are true, we can go live out of. And so let me kind of go ahead and give you the main idea for the text, which is, is going to be the main idea as the, as the sermon. I'm going to kind of reword it for our context a little bit. So As we read this here in just a second, we're going to see the author of Hebrews remind his audience that they are no longer under the old covenant, but that now they've come to an unshakable kingdom in the new covenant. He's going to encourage them to believe the gospel, to be grateful, and to worship God with reverence and awe. And so let's kind of put that in in context for us. What does that mean for us as believers at Campus Collective and Huntington Community Church? It means the exact same thing, that as believers living on mission in college, where we work, where we hang out, whatever we're doing, we should believe this gospel, build our life on it, and have confidence that because of Christ, we are part of an unshakable kingdom. And our lives should reflect this in how we live and how we worship. So I have a title for you tonight, um, and the title comes in the form of a question. So the question is, where can sinners meet with a holy God? And the answer to that is in his unshakable kingdom. And so as we work through this tonight, we'll kind of develop this idea of where can sinners meet with a holy God in his unshakable kingdom? So I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, just kind of do a, a gut check before we get into this. Ask yourself, do I believe the gospel? Not do I intellectually believe the gospel, not do I mentally assent to some facts, uh, but do I believe the gospel? Is it true to me? Do I preach it to myself? Do I believe that I have full access to God? Am I grateful for the gospel if I believe it? Do I worship God with reverence and awe? Does my life, my walk with God look different than like a secular or a religious person's walk with him? And if the answer to any of those is no, then I I pray that tonight Hebrews 12, 18 through 29 is going to give you the push that you need to trust Christ and to be confident in your access to God because of him and then to go live out of that. And I ask you those questions because I have a suspicion that in a, in a crowd like this, and I know this because I sat where you sat once as a college student um, coming into my faith uh, for the first time, not sure 
about this whole gospel thing. And when I did first come to Christ, I, I kind of had this idea in my head that, okay, that's great. Jesus died for me, but God is still far off or, or inaccessible. Like, he's still mad at me. Uh, so maybe that's you. Um, you, you might be, you relate to him in a functional, mental way, but you don't relate to him like he actually loves you and wants to know you. There's many here tonight, even though we're small in numbers, uh, I don't doubt who just flat out reject Jesus. Uh, you, you hear this and it sounds great, but it's not for you. Then we've got fence riders, right? That was me. Uh, I think Jesus is interesting, but I won't surrender to him. Right? I, I see the claims that he makes on my life, but I'm not going all in. But tonight, the author of Hebrews isn't going to let you ride that middle ground. Uh, he's going to force you to respond one way or the other to what Jesus has done. And so that's just flat out cards on the table. By the time I get to the end of this text, I'm going to plead with you that if you are not in Christ, to be in Christ. And that if you are in Christ, to celebrate and love the fact that you are in Christ. I'm not going to ask you to walk any aisles. I'm not going to ask you to bow your heads. But I am going to ask you either for the first time or for the hundredth time to place your trust in a person, in Christ. You can accept or reject the gospel. That's it. There's no other option. And so my prayer tonight is that you will see how much Jesus loves you. And that gospel will be irresistible to you. So let's read Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven." At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, and we are so thankful that you would allow us to even come into your presence, knowing our sin, knowing what's in our hearts. But we thank you, Jesus, that we have access to you and that we have your word. And so I pray right now, God, that your word would not return back to you void, that people would hear it, love it, Obey it and be changed by it forever, Jesus. And so it's in your name. Amen. So as I'm reading this text, uh, kind of a question comes to mind. Have you ever been afraid of something from a distance? 
Uh, like you see it really far off, and you, you, you get up close to it, and it's not as bad as you thought it was, right? Like maybe you've been to like New York City, and you see these like massive skyscrapers, scary going up in them. Um, well, I kind of have a story to illustrate that that is not New York City, and I don't want to flex, but Michael Loveday last week gave an analogy that had to do with Disney World. Well, mine's even better. It has to do with Kings Island. So if you're not from here and you're like, what's Kings Island? Kings Island is basically West Virginia Disney World. Okay, so look at that, Stan. But I'm in high school, and my youth group is going to Kings Island. We're on the bus. We're on the way there. I'd been to Kings Island before as a kid, but it'd been a while. I think I was in like ninth grade when I was going with my youth group. Um, And as you drive up to Kings Island, you're driving through Cincinnati, you can see all the roller coasters on the skyline. In hindsight, like if I went now, it's probably not that big. But to ninth grade me, I'm embarrassed to say that this is high school me, that was terrifying to see these. Um, They looked huge, right? They have loops, they've got drops. Like we get out of the bus and you just hear people screaming. I don't know who designed the parking lot for Kings Island, but it is like right by the scariest ride in the whole park. This ride that like shoots you up backwards, goes a loop, and then drops you back. I was terrified. So we get out of the bus, and you know, I'd been there before, but when I'd been there before, I was little, and it wasn't a super good experience. I was too small. I was scared of everything, wasted everybody's money, and we just went home. I think I rode like two rides. Um, So I had that in the back of my mind the whole time, but I knew because I'm in high school, everybody's going to want to ride these rides. So I'm either going to have to sit on the sidelines while everybody rides or suck it up and get on them. And then to top it all off, they had just opened a new coaster, the Diamondback. At the time, was the tallest ride in Kings Island. So I was like, great, I'm terrified. This is the grand opening of the Diamondback. So there's two things stacked against me. And luckily for me, my youth pastor was terrified of roller coasters, too. He was like, we're in this together. I'm not riding anything. We'll just sit on the side. But then as we got to talking, we were like, man, we, we got to ride it. Like, we can't, we can't be lame. We can't miss out on this. And so we spent all day, like, talking ourselves into it. Finally, the day come, or the end of the day comes. We get on it. We strap in. You're, like, barely strapped in. It's just like a bar across your lap. Nothing else. We're climbing the hill. About to drop. I'm like, this is it. I'm going to die. I'm 15. Uh, it's over. Uh, but, you know, the, the drop came, and, and it was like one of the greatest things ever. I had so much fun. At the end of it, we were like, let's ride it again. And now I love roller coasters, and I'll ride them all the time. Right? Like, I was terrified because I had this, like, image in my head of they were big and imposing and scary, and I didn't understand how they worked. But then when I had somebody who could get me into their presence, get on the ride, it made it better. And that's kind of a silly story, but what we read in Hebrews chapter 12 is really similar. Uh, hopefully you picked up on this as we were reading, but the author of Hebrews is trying to tell this story to, to the audience reading the latter half of this letter of how big God is, right? How far off at one point God was. How big the divide between him and us really is. And specifically for for the Israelites who are mentioned in here, it was terrifying for them to come into God's presence. But I hope you saw this too, that he he showed them that because of the gospel, they had this unlimited, unrestricted access to God, this 
big, holy, massive God, and they were welcomed into his kingdom. And so the key here is understanding our mediator, right? I hope you heard that phrase as well, that where God was once inaccessible to us because of our sin and his holiness, we now have this mediator who gets us into God's presence, and we can be his children forever. So let's think back to last week, right, Michael's text. So Michael's text, Hebrews chapter 12, ended with the author of Hebrews challenging his readers to live their lives, to live these holy lives, um, to persevere, to keep on going, to keep walking the Christian walk, to not give up for fleeting worldly pleasure. And this week, he's going to tie that into this. So last week we ended with, here's commands, here's how to live, and this week we have the grounding, here's why. The entire book of Hebrews up to this point has been filled with these references to the Old Testament, over and over emphasizing how Jesus is the true and better fulfiller of everything that that Old Testament was foreshadowing. And then here in chapter 12, 18 through 29, the author is zooming out, right? Kind of picture this text as like a bird's eye view. He's zooming out, and it's this bird's eye view of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What do I mean by those terms? Because you probably saw the term New Covenant in there, but you may not have seen Old Covenant. Well, by Old Covenant, we mean that the covenant, that the promise, the relationship that God first established with Israel at Mount Sinai, recounted in the Old Testament, specifically the book of Exodus, after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. God rescues them, and then he gives them this law to obey and makes him their God and them his people. There were stipulations to this covenant, right? If the people continued to obey, then they would continue to have fellowship with God. When they disobeyed his laws, which if you track the Old Testament is repeatedly over and over, there had to be bloodshed. There had to be a sacrifice. A death had to occur to pay for that law breaking so that the people could be restored back into relationship with God. The Old Covenant we've seen week after week was this picture of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. Right, The Old Covenant was, was not meant to be lasting. It was this reminder to the people that they needed a substitute. Sin was standing between them and God. And it had to be dealt with, either in their own death or in the death of another. And we read in Hebrews 10 that these sacrifices couldn't make the people clean. Right? They just highlighted year after year, week after week, day after day, that there had to be a restoration take place. So that's Old Covenant. And then by New Covenant, we mean the eternal covenant that we, as people, gospel people, people in Christ, have access to now. God promised in the Old Testament that he was going to bring a new covenant, that people would be made permanently clean and spotless from their sin and filled with his Holy Spirit so that they would want to walk in obedience to him. We see this promised in places like Jeremiah 31. 31 through 34. Jeremiah writes this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So it's promised in the Old Testament, and it's inaugurated by Jesus. Look at Luke twenty-two nineteen through 20. This is Jesus the night before he's crucified. And he took bread, Jesus, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, his disciples, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper this past Sunday. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So because of the new covenant, because a death has occurred, a permanent death, but also a permanent resurrection, there is no more sacrifice for sins. New covenant people can come to Jesus and be made clean, restored to God, and filled with the Spirit to live a new life. So that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's holding both of these up and examining them. So let's look at verses 18 through 21. And spoiler, you probably picked it up while you're reading. The author of Hebrews wants you to be a new covenant person, not stuck back in the old covenant. So let's look at verse 18 through 21. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So, like we said, previous section, he's given them live the Christian life, right? And now he's grounding it in this logic. Live the Christian life because of this. How do we know that? Well, he uses the word for in verse 18. In other words, hold on. Keep living holy lives. Keep trusting, like Michael said, that the Lord is disciplining you for your good to make you more like him. Hold on to the end. Steadfast in your faith. Don't give up because of this truth. And he presents them this truth that they should get their reasoning from in the form of a negative. He says, this is what you have not come to. This is not where you are. In verses 18 through 21 are this kind of like short flyby summary of what Israel saw and experienced on the day that God made his presence and covenant known to them in Mount Sinai. If you go back, we don't have time to go there now, but if you go back to Exodus 19, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, it's this recollection of, of the day when, when God called the people to come before him so he could establish his relationship with them. And it's terrifying. Look what the author of Hebrews says. Here's a reference to Exodus 19.12. He says, The people had come to what may be touched. So people, Old Covenant people, Israel, they had come to a mountain. right? But if you go back into Exodus 19, you see that on this mountain, God had descended. And all of his holiness was there. It was terrifying. He had told them, don't come anywhere near this mountain. He also says they had come to a blazing fire in darkness in gloom, in a tempest. There's another reference to Exodus 19, 16 through 18. God's presence on the mountain is shrouded in fire, darkness. There's a storm. The picture is, is God is other. He's different. He's not like you. He's bigger than you. It also says, They had come to the sound of a trumpet in a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Another reference to Exodus 19, 16 through 19 and Exodus 20. God descends on Mount Sinai and there's trumpet blasts just getting louder and louder and louder. And God speaks to them 
gives them the law, and the people hear it, and after God's done giving it, they say, Moses, please, we don't want to hear from him again. That was too much for us. You go up. You go talk to him on our behalf. So Moses goes. And the people of Israel realize that they are seeing God's glory. That's a kind of a term that we we kind of throw out a lot in church culture, right? The glory of God. But the glory of God is this, this otherness, this perfection, this wrapped up terror and awesomeness that you can't even wrap your mind around. And the people of Israel are up close and they see it. And their reaction is, is we can't get near it. You know, for in sermons and, and all the discredit we give to the people of Israel, this is one time they actually get it, right? That God is not like you or I. They can't stand before him. Not even an animal could get anywhere near the mountain or it would be killed. The author of Hebrews even says how Moses, right? The great leader Moses, we think of as an inspiring character, right? He, he'd encountered God already in the burning bush. He is absolutely terrified. The author records how Moses says, I tremble with fear. So to be in the presence of a holy God is fear-inducing. Now here's the picture. God makes his holiness known. And without a mediator, without somebody there to stand in the middle, without access, it's terrifying. God is perfectly holy, and we are not. The people of Israel needed someone to speak with him on behalf. He, in his holiness, is directly opposed to sin. Sinners, that's that's you and I, people who have broken God's law in big ways, in small ways, in our hearts, with our actions, we cannot stand before a holy God with any shred of confidence. And so the people of Israel, the author of Hebrews is recounting, they're seeing this pictured out in real space and time. Right? This isn't just an abstract thing that, that they're thinking of. They're seeing it. God is there, and I am here, and I can't get to him because of my sin. And so the skeptic might stop us here, and they might say, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. Isn't God supposed to be loving? Right? Why does he care so much about sin? Like, why can't he just let people come up to him? Does he want to know people, so why can't we just do it? Like, why do we need all this talk about sacrifices and gospel and death and payment? Isn't Jesus in the New Testament gentle? Right? Doesn't he just kind of forgive sin and brush it under the rug? Seems like dark, God's really dark and angry in the Old Testament, right? This must be a different God. But here's the answer. The God of the Old Covenant and the God of the New Covenant are the exact same God. God does not change when you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's not changed. We'll see in just a minute as we keep going in this passage that something has changed, but it's not him. God is what we call immutable. He cannot be changed. He doesn't change. God doesn't learn things. God doesn't grow or develop. God is. Something has to change, and that something has to be what's done with our sin. Something has to change in us to make us pleasing and acceptable to God. We are the ones that need the change to take place, and not Him. And we might act like we don't understand this separation talk, but we get it. Like, in your everyday life, We use this language, right? Like, a child, hopefully, doesn't just walk up to his parents and, like, tell them what the plan is for the day, right? Like, Silas, 
my son is not going to be like, hey, mom and dad, I'd really like to do this today, and here's why. That's not how it works. Why is that? Because there's a degree of separation, right? Hopefully, a child knows that his parents have authority. They have a higher position than him. They are other. They're, they're, there's a, a degree of separation. So that's kind of the small example. Or think about it like this. I'm not like a football person, but like I know Tom Brady is, is great, right? Like if he comes to town next week, none of you, I don't think so, are going to like text him or call him and be like, hey, Tom, uh, I made all these plans for us. Like I, th- I thought we could do them. Uh, or you're not going to like go to him at an autograph signing and be like, sit down and throw your arm around and be like, I got a few plays I'd like to run by you. I think you could do better next year, Right? There's a degree of separation. Like we recognize that there's, there's this degree of like prestige of, of other between us and, and Tom Brady. Take it even farther. You wouldn't presume that you would walk into the president's office or a queen's palace or a king's palace and throw yourself down on the couch and say, let me run a few ideas by you, right? You get it. There's a degree of separation. We recognize like the, the more prestigious someone is, the more authority someone has, the more accomplished someone is, the greater they are. There's a degree of separation. So now take that and go to the furthest extreme that your mind will let you go, and then some. God is the greatest conceivable being. He is the greatest thing that your mind could even imagine, and even better than that. Scripture teaches us that He's the creator and sustainer of the universe. He made everything completely out of nothing by his word. He has always existed and will always exist. He is eternal. He has complete authority over life and death and everything in existence. He is sovereign. He is spotless, pure, completely without sin. He is impeccable, perfectly good, omnibenevolent. We could go on and on. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. God is so much bigger than anything we can imagine. And the logic is, is if you would not approach a parent or a celebrity or an authority figure flippantly or without an invitation, then you certainly could not expect to approach the holy God Almighty in that way. There is an eternal degree of separation between us and our sin and God and his holiness. Sounds bleak, right? But if we're following the logic of the passage, all of that, this terrifying, inaccessible, separated, holy presence of God, the author of Hebrews says, is not what Christians have come to. All because of Jesus. The author of Hebrews says that the, those who have trusted Christ and his finished work and resurrection are no longer there. Right? We're not relating to God like that anymore. We're somewhere else. Where are we? Let's keep going. We'll see that where we are is pictured as this Mount Zion, where we have full, unrestricted access to God in Christ. Look at verses 22 through 24. There's a contrast. So held up the old covenant. Now he's holding up the new covenant. And he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So he's saying is terrifying and separated and terror-inducing and awesome that the old covenant is. The new covenant, the, new, the way we relate to God now as gospel people is that much more wonderful and glorious. He uses the phrase in verse 22, but you have come. This idea of this, you're already there. Right? Last time I checked tonight, I'm not anywhere at a place called Mount Zion. Right? I'm in Huntington, West Virginia. So what does he mean? Well, it's this idea that's all throughout the New Testament of this already and not yet. It's this, even though we're waiting on Jesus to return and the creation to be restored, right, the kingdom of God to be fully realized, he's saying that right now by trusting in Jesus, you already have that kingdom. You already have that full access to God. This isn't a future, distant, out there on the horizon hope. This is a present reality that can be active in your life. And he calls this reality we've come to Mount Zion. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What does that mean? Well, Zion is the name used for Jerusalem in the Old Testament. It shows up about 150 plus times. Um, We don't have time to go through all those references, but if you have a concordance, you can get one online or the back of your Bible. or Somebody will let you borrow one. Just do a concordance search of the word Zion and see how it develops throughout the Old Testament. It, It starts as this actual place where David takes over and he's the king of Israel and he reigns from there and that's the people look to there as that's the place where the king sits enthroned and the the prophets and the writers develop it into this idea of like there is a better heavenly Zion kingdom coming this is the full realization of King Jesus reigning forever unopposed with his people you'll see if you go and you trace this idea of Zion that it it represents what John Piper says. It's the place where the old covenant people would have looked at and knew their help came from. But they would also look and see, we can't wait for the perfected version of that. It's the already, not yet. It's the same thing for us as new covenant people. We, we look to, to Zion, to this kingdom where, where Jesus sits enthroned, where he, he already does, reigning in heaven. But one day he's coming and it's going to be fully realized. So what he's saying is, is we have complete, unfettered access to the king. Instead of approaching Mount Sinai, right, we approach Mount Zion. We don't hear this law that we can't keep and see God's holiness, but have no direct access to it. We approach Mount Zion where we have full access to God and we worship him while he rules the coming creation and the fully restored creation forever. One commentator says this, is that Zion represents that Christ perfectly fulfilled what Sinai represented. So being at Zion, imagine hearing the law, all the things you could not keep. Zion is where Jesus has kept the law. Zion is the place of rest for God's people. It's purchased for them by the work of Christ. And fulfilling all righteousness and dying in our place. So just imagine what life would be like if you actually live like that. Right now, tonight, full access to the king of all kings. You can know him. You can talk to him in prayer. 
You can have relationship with him. And one day when this, this kingdom comes in full, God and man will live together on earth in the new heaven. And that's what we have access to. Complete relationship, complete communion with God forever. The author of Hebrews also says the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven are there. What's that? Well, that's us. That's the church. We have an eternal place with God. Um, we're called the assembly of the firstborn. So if you look at Colossians 1.15, this term firstborn is usually restricted to Christ, right? Colossians 1.15 says the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Not this idea that like Jesus is created or that he's less than the Father. No, this, is, this term means Jesus is the uncreated God, but he holds this place of supremacy above all other creation. He has this special position. And it's crazy that the, the other Hebrews can say that because of the gospel, that term can apply to us. We, as the church, people in Christ, are God's special treasured possession that will be with him forever. Keep going. It looks like this, this Zion that we're coming to, this place of relationship with God, is a place of celebration. No more gloom and darkness because of sin. It says there are angels in festal gathering. I like how the NIV says it. It says that there's thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. There's no more trepidation or being afraid to approach God now because of the gospel, but there is just eternal celebration and rejoicing. And then he says that we as gospel people have come to God, the judge of all. Israel couldn't claim this, right? There's a barrier between them and God. They couldn't get close. But it says that we have, as the church have come to God himself. Not a priest, not an institution, but to God. And that phrase, the judge of all, should move something inside of you one way or the other. If you're not in Christ, this is a terrifying reality that you will face the judge. Notice that it says he is God, the judge of all, not God, the judge of some, not God, just the judge of those religious people that buy into this, not God, the judge of the horrible and awful people, but God, the judge of all, all of mankind will stand and be judged by God. That's terrifying. But the author of Hebrews frames it as this beautiful hope for the believer. Why? Because when the Christian faces God, the judge of all, we don't see him and wonder, I wonder what the verdict is. We see him and we know that we have an advocate, Jesus, who continually appeals to his righteousness and payment for our sin. When we stand in judgment, God, the judge of all, gives us a clean record and pardons us, not because of anything we've done, but all because of Christ's righteousness and his death. So on the day that you stand in, res in, in judgment before God, when he's righting all wrongs, when he's bringing evil to an account, for the believer, it's not terrifying because when that gavel falls, you don't get turned away. This is like if the judge, I think Luke used this illustration a, a couple collectives ago. This is like if the judge got off the bench and stood in your place as your lawyer and declares you clean. Because on that day when the Christian stands in judgment, Christ will say, I paid every debt. They are free. And then we will get to go live as children of God forever. Keeps going. It gets even better. The author says, 
we have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What's that? Well, he's talking about the saints who endured and who have had the, their faith realized. Right? Remember back in chapter 11, this, it's kind of called like the hall of faith. All these people who placed their faith in God, who looked forward to this coming kingdom, this full realization. And, and what he's saying is that, that they are already perfected and that one day we're going to join them. You are not perfected yet. I'm sure you're aware of that. And I am not perfected yet. I am very aware of that. We are still struggling with our sin daily. But the author of Hebrews says when we come to this kingdom, we will be made perfect. There won't be a spot of sin. There won't even be an inclination to want to sin. There will be no trace of imperfection. God will make you perfect. You will want to just obey and enjoy and do what you were created to do forever. This is what we call the process of sanctification and glorification. Sanctification is what Michael talked about last week with the Lord disciplining you to make you more and more like Jesus every day. And glorification is that final day when we stand before God, unable to sin, free from pain, free from sickness, free from brokenness, free from death. So let's sum up what the new covenant looks like so far. What we as, as gospel people have access to. We know that we already have access to it. And that one day we'll have complete access to it in full. And that we can enjoy relationship with God. And we will eternally enjoy it. In celebration as his perfected church. And then look at verse 24. The author reminds us how we access all of this. He says, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. As believers, we have full access to God in this perfect kingdom because Jesus is our mediator. Remember, the people at Sinai, they sent Moses. He was just a man. He was scared. He was sinful. He would do some messed up things. He would die. He wasn't their permanent go-between. He couldn't bring them to this fully realized relationship with God. But Jesus, because he is God, can secure this relationship for us. Because Jesus is God, because he could fulfill all righteousness, because Jesus did die for your sins, he is our mediator. What that means for you is that you don't have to worry if God's going to go back on his promise. Some of you tonight struggle with the fact that you're going to be dropped. You struggle with eternal security. That was me. You, you have this hard time believing that because of the things that you've done or because of the things that go on in your heart that God could keep you forever, right? You're like, man, I just from 6 o'clock this morning to right now have really screwed this thing up. But Jesus being the mediator is such good news because it means that you don't have to look at your own performance anymore because Jesus is the go-between. And just to kind of say a word about the idea of a mediator, I don't want you to leave here and think that like the father and the son are, are kind of at odds and like you're sitting at this table and the father's like angry that you're there and kind of has his back turned to you and is like, Jesus, can't believe you'd let these people in. But I guess because you died, I'll let them in. Like that's not what it means. This was the gospel. God accomplishing our salvation was the the Father's plan from the beginning. The Father, the Son, the Spirit worked in tandem to create this. The Father delights in the fact that Jesus is your mediator. 
A mediator is just someone who acts to restore peace between two parties who are at odds. That's what the priests in the Old Testament were always doing. They were mediators, offering sacrifices, but they were insufficient. But Jesus is our eternal mediator. He will never die again. And as long as he lives, which is forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, then we will have perfect peace with God. Look at Hebrews 9.15. Remember this? We read this. Therefore, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Jesus secures our eternal relationship with God first by his death. And then before that, we read in Hebrews 7.25, remember this? Consequently, he, that's Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus secures the eternal promise for us by his resurrected life. And then look at the last phrase of verse 24. It says, into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So commentators go back and forth about what this could mean. There's one view that, you know, Abel's blood, if you remember Abel in Genesis, he offered a sacrifice to God. God was pleased with it. His brother Cain also offered a sacrifice. God was not pleased with it. Cain and his jealousy killed Abel. And so one view is that when Cain killed Abel, Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. It says that in Genesis. But that Christ's blood now cries out for our pardon. So that's one view. Another view is that when Abel, by faith, offered an animal sacrifice to God, we don't know what kind of animal he offered, we just know that he offered an animal sacrifice to God, blood, a death, and God was pleased in it, he was, Abel was accepted and commended. And so our logic could be that Christ is the better sacrifice who has been offered on our behalf, and because of him we are accepted and commended. So, so kind of both views of those. Both of those views, I don't see why you couldn't hold both in, in conjunction with each other. They're both reasonable. The point of this is clear. That it's Christ's perfect sacrifice, his death, that speaks the final word for us. And it's his life that secures our inheritance as God's people. And then look at the beginning of, of verse 24 where he says, To the sprinkled blood. So sprinkled blood, that's the idea of, of, of ratifying a covenant. If you go back to Exodus 24, after Moses has finished giving the people God's law, he calls them to account and he's, he asks them if they're going to obey. They say, yes, we will obey. We'll keep our end of the bargain. God is going to keep his end of the bargain. And Moses takes sacrificial blood and he sprinkles it on the people, this seal, right? Jesus' blood, his death, that's what we mean when we're talking about his, his blood, is the seal, that the covenant has been ratified, that it stands forever, and that you have an advocate before God who continually points to his perfect death and resurrection on your behalf. Listen to the words from, this is one of my favorite hymns, Before the Throne of God Above. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is Love, Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. 
My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. So let's wrap up. So after holding these two covenants up against each other and examining them, showing us the beauty of of the new covenant, encouraging us to be fueled by the fact that the gospel is true, the author turns the camera around on us. And so we're faced with a choice. We have to respond. Look at verse 25. It's a warning. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See. In other words, wake up. Pay attention. Do not refuse. If you can refuse something, that means you have a choice to make. You have a choice to make with all of this truth, with the gospel. Christ is speaking to you today. This is not Anthony up here trying to give you a good pep talk. This is Jesus speaking to you through his word, begging you to come to him where his blood speaks for your pardon. It goes on in verse 25. For, so see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, because if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So if you were to go back to the Old Testament and kind of trace Israel's track record, you'll see that over and over again, God is pleading with them and saying, please come to me on the basis of who I am and what I've done. And time and time again, Israel just flat out rejects it. And there's always consequences. At one point, all of Israel gets leveled to the ground and sent into exile and judged for their sin. And the author of Hebrews is saying that's just a temporal earthly consequence compared to what consequences there are for people who reject the gospel. The author of Hebrews is saying that if that was the case for people when they rejected God in the old covenant, now that Christ is seated in heaven, you can be assured, there's no doubt about it, that there is no escape from God's judgment if we reject him. He is welcoming you. He is saying, please, Please come. I've done everything. You don't bring anything, and I want to welcome you in. And if you refuse that, there's nowhere else left to go. There's no other payment. What are you going to stand before God with? Because he's going to say, I paid for it all. and You just didn't want it. Look at verse 26 and 27, the sobering picture of, of judgment. Right? One, one pastor says that you would kind of expect at this point, the author of Hebrews to kind of jump over the judgment now, right? But no, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. God is going to judge the earth. Verse 26, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, 
Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So if you go back to Exodus 19 and 20, Deuteronomy 5, and you, you look at that account, when God descended on Sinai, like the earth shook. There was an earthquake, and it was scary. It was terrifying to be before a holy God as he gave his law. And the author here, he's quoting from Haggai 2, and he says that one day in the future, God will shake not only earth, but also the heavens. This shorthand way of saying that God is going to judge all the nations and all people and restore the full glory of his creation. He says this phrase, yet once more, so God shook the earth before, Once more, he's going to shake it again. This final judgment indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So he's saying that when Jesus returns on that final day, everything that cannot remain, sin, brokenness, the effects of the curse, all of our idolatry, everything that does not bow in worship to Christ, will be shaken and removed. Creation will be purified so that the perfected work of Christ in his kingdom is the only thing left standing. Just like the God, the judge of all phrase, this is beautiful and scary at the same time. That means nothing is going to stand in God's way. There's no amount of walls you can put up between you and him. There's no amount of intellectual arguments. There's no amount of religiosity. There's no amount of good works. There's nothing that we can put up to stand between us and God. Every sin is going to be dealt with. Every act of evil, suffering, all placed under Jesus' feet. Good news for the believer. Bad news for the person who rejects. If you're not in Christ, you are one of those things that will be shaken and not remain. And we're not going to pull punches tonight because we love you. I love you and I want you to believe this message. And I would be a liar if I stood up here and told you that there was not a day of wrath and judgment coming and that only those who are in Christ will be welcomed into Jesus' eternal kingdom. A beautiful day for the believer where we're welcomed in, the judgment's over, we get to enjoy restored creation, but for the unbeliever, nothing but wrath and sorrow forever. And that can be you tonight. Like, Don't just listen to this and think, man, that'd be great. If I could get in on that. Like that can be. You don't have to leave here. Your job, your money, your relationships, religion, your status, everything is going to pass away. And the only thing that's going to be left standing is Christ. And so the offer tonight is, do you want to be found in him? And if you are found in him, does that not just blow your mind? Verse 28 we're getting to the end, tells us what to do with this good news. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So in Christ, we have this unshakable kingdom. It will never be taken away from us. Where can sinners meet with a holy God in his unshakable kingdom that he's inviting you into? No matter what happens to you, you're secure. And so he tells us that since we have this unshakable kingdom, here's what our response should be. We should offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
So there's a question for you to consider tonight. Are you grateful for the gospel? Are you absolutely floored by the fact that the holy God would welcome you into his presence and give you an eternal inheritance that you did not work for or deserve? Are you reverential toward God? God's not your co-pilot. God's not your buddy. He's your savior and your king. When people talk to you at work, school, wherever you're at, do they see this like reverential awe, big Jesus flow out of you? Do you make Jesus look big with your life? Or do you live in a way that says he's not really that big and the kingdom's not really real? The author of Hebrews seems to think that this is what gospel people do. Gospel-shaped people never get over the gospel, and they worship God with their whole lives, cherishing and rejoicing in his love and mercy. And then the author tells us why we should live like this. Look at verse 29. Once more in front of us. Why should you become a Christian if you are not one? And if you are one, why should you worship and live like this? Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. The metaphor, the imagery there is vivid. Jesus is the center of reality, not you. And that's why you should worship him. To reject him will result in your being consumed by his holiness. And to be a Christian and to live like he's not the king and he's not what your life is all about is to just live a lie. Why would you do it? But the good news is, is that those who hide themselves in him will not be consumed by that holiness. You'll be welcomed into it, into this unshakable kingdom forever. But you have so much hope because evil, suffering, darkness, it's all going to go away. Jesus already reigns supreme and he's just going to keep reigning supreme. So as the band comes back up, just a few final applications. First, I want to challenge you. Uh, I know I've kind of said, like, go look this up a, a lot of times, but there's just so much here that, that you need to see for yourself that I don't have time to cover up here. Um, go home tonight or this week and read Revelation 19 through 22 and just see this consummation of the kingdom. Just see Jesus bring this kingdom in and crush evil and welcome his people into it. If you're a believer tonight, you should realize what you have in Christ and your life should just be one of worship. People who realize the gospel sing louder than anybody else and don't care what they sound like. They serve people and they don't care what they get back because they know that God has dealt with them beyond mercifully in Christ. They should be awestruck. They should fear God. Not in, as one uh, pastor says, not in this like slavish dread way of, of God is my taskmaster that I'm afraid of, but he says it like this. This is how we should fear and relate to God. The person who realizes that God is a consuming fire and that God has shown us grace in Jesus Christ will look at God with childlike love and respect the way a child looks at a father who she adores and respects. He says, some of you haven't had fathers like that. I understand. Some of you have. If you haven't, God is the kind of father that you have never have. If you have, God is better than any father that you have had. And he goes on to say that we should live a life characterized by gratitude. 
That means that looks like waking up in the morning and the first thought in your mind is, thank you, Jesus, that I am alive and that you have paid for all of my sins. Lord, there's nothing like you. I reverence you. I respect you. I want to glorify you today, Lord. Help me to do that. Non-believers in the room, your mission is simple. Don't reject the gospel. Talk to somebody tonight. Talk to me. Talk to Dustin. Talk to anybody that you've seen up here on this stage or somebody that brought you tonight. And do not leave here uncertain of where your eternity will lie. So I just want to close with you with Psalm 125, verse 1. I'm reading this from the NIV. This this final picture of, of what people who trust in the Lord look like. He says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. So where can sinners meet with a holy God? They can meet with Him in His unshakable kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful for this kingdom. God, I pray that our lives would be marked by reverence and awe and gratefulness and worship. And I pray that tonight, if there are people here who have not surrendered to you, Jesus, that they would just put everything down and trust that you have done everything. Lord Jesus, please just help us to worship right now. Help your word to be written across our hearts as we leave. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.